Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and welcome once again to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, and I'm Roberta Radovich. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African American world of news and local events of interest, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first, people are always fascinated by human persistence and achievement against all odds. It turns books into bestsellers, movies into blockbusters, and common people into exemplars. Such is the story of this evening's guest, Nordia McNeish. Many, re- many may recall that exactly two weeks ago, the Herald Times reporter Emily Cox reported this Jamaican immigrant's fight to make a life for herself and her son while in a homeless shelter. Her story is truly compelling, and while she has many years to continue leaving an indelible mark on society, we wanted to invite her here to share her inspirational story. story excuse me, Nordia, welcome to Bring It On. Oh, thank you. Thank you for okay. having me. So right now, um, at the present, you find yourself poised to graduate from Indiana University uh, in the spring, right? Yes. Okay, so that's where we are now. We want to paint a picture uh, for our listening audience. So let's let's go back to Jamaica, where it began from you, and, and tell us about uh, your life in Jamaica. Well, growing up in Jamaica, it was very hard. Um my mother was present. My father was um, somewhere close by, and um, for my safety, my mother kept me out of um, out of the house. I um, stayed with a few people. I would go spend uh, a weekend with a teacher, and they took a liking to me, and I ended up staying there for three or four months or maybe years. Um, reason being because my mother thought that, you know, being out of the house would be safe for me because she wasn't going to be in the house. At the time, she was also trying to uplift herself by getting a um, studying um, clothing design in Jamaica because she was a factory worker for a lot of years. And then she wanted to do something more. And she took that bold step and it was some distance away. And she wasn't able to be there on a constant daily basis. And I had older siblings as well. And so your your mother's uh, drive and her work ethic obviously inspired you. I believe so. I believe it did. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about Nordia, the little girl, what what did you think about and dream about? Had you always anticipated um, making your way to the United States? No, not at all. Um, it was it was not even in my mind, really, because we saw America as this 
um, awesome place like a Disney World. Most of Jamaicans do, and they feel like it's like this place where everything is beautiful, you know, because we are, the community that I live, we constantly have, like, people from America, mostly mm-hmm. white people, come down, and they'll bring supplies to the churches, and then we end up um, getting supplies. Missionaries. Yes, missionaries. Um, so um, they would come, and, you know, they're nice to give us things, and we, um, some of us, including myself, developed pen pal relationship and right back and forth Mm -hmm. but I never saw it as an opportunity as there was an opportunity for me to be um, here in America Mm -hmm. as a child. Nordia I think what is so compelling about your story is just your sheer strength and courage and transparency (laughs) not very many I don't care from where what part of the diaspora you're from to say that um, to to claim your self-story to claim your journey, all the hard and ugly and challenging parts, and, and to claim those as vic- some of those. <laughs> yeah, to claim those as victorious, even when somebody might introduce you as somebody who might have been homeless or low wealth for a second. That's incredibly courageous, and I just want to honor you and say thank you for sharing your story. First of all, I don't think we uh, set the said thank you in advance for sharing your story but thank you thank you I felt a little exposed but you know it mm-hmm. was my truth so mm-hmm. you mean you felt exposed telling your story yes so yes. Uh, what what was it like going to school for you in Jamaica going to school in Jamaica was very difficult I sometimes um, went to school without shoes without food you know um, teachers would have pity on me kids would bully me because I didn't have shoes or food Um, lunch money you know you have to have lunch money to buy food even in the public schools you still have to have like some money to buy the thing that is the cheapest because they have food that is the cheapest but you still need money to buy it there's no free um, lunches so it was it was very hard, and we lived quite some distance away from where uh, my elementary school was, and I had to literally walk. Most kids would take a cab because there's, like, no public buses mm-hmm. that would, like, pick up kids like in America and take them to school. So I was – I loved school because that's where I felt safe. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't matter what I had on or what I didn't have. I still wanted to go, so I went to school. Is that because you had teachers who helped make you feel safe or what 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 kind of kept you feeling like school was a sanctuary for you? I think most definitely it was the teachers. I had some um, awesome teachers at elementary level and all through even when I was attending high school. And it's because of those relationships that I have that I was able to feel like I was safe in there when I'm with them mm-hmm. instead of feeling like um, they wasn't for me and I would rather go home. So I'd rather stay with them than go home. So Is that what inspires mm-hmm. you to want to be a social worker? Well, not really, because at that time I didn't even know of the profession of social okay. work. Um, mm-hmm. So I was thinking of psychology. I love mm. psychology, and I wanted to do psychology, and that's what I had in my mind. Even though I wasn't like um, that educated to know the depths of what psychology was, I always sure. said that I wanted to be a psychologist. You know, because my friends um, in high school they always say, "Oh, you have that 
not ignored you. You always know what to say, what to let it. You always listen, you know. So I felt Are like you the lis- you're the listener in the friend group. <laughs> yes, I most can definitely, tell. <laughs> most definitely. For I'm, our listening audience, we, we you, you can probably hear that she's a little bit on the reserve side, yes. and uh, so you 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 wanted to help people by helping them think through some of their problems yes. and mm-hmm. most definitely. So it's it's actually when I um, came to um, Indiana University, I didn't even know at that time about social work, really. I just knew that I wanted to be in a field where I would make a difference, where I would be able to help people not have to go through what I did Mm -hmm. while I was here. So um, researching that along with my um, advisor, my undergraduate advisor, which is Constance, she was the one who actually helped me to um, find that direction of social work. And once I found it and then it, um, I took the first class, um, 141, I was like, this is this is where I want. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. Well, hold that thought for just a minute, uh, because we, we do want to get into that. But. Um, but before we do, I'm really curious uh, to know how your your life situation evolved to the point where you knew you wanted to leave and to immigrate here. Mm-hmm. And then there's several questions uh, surrounding that. Did you come by yourself? Did did you bring your son with you? But so so far, we know you went to went to high school in Jamaica. So what led up to to your immigration? Well, that's kind of a touchy subject um, that I'm I can't go too much into, but. Um, to try to put it briefly, um, as I spoke of um, going to school was a rescue, I thought that coming here would be a rescue. And that opportunity presented itself in a way maybe not conventionally, but um, I thought that it was, and my mother thought that that this would be an opportunity where I'd be more protected. And so she, um, she was at the forefront of making this happen, and that's how I ended up coming to America because she thought that it would be the best thing for me. How old were you? I think I was uh, 20. But though I was 20, I was like probably at the naive mindset of probably a 16-year-old. Yes, because I was so oblivious to so many things. That, that that would be like your son going and living in another country now, basically, right? Yes, basically. Basically, mm-hmm. there were so many things I didn't know. I didn't know you know, about relationships. I didn't know about, you know, how to keep myself safe. I didn't know how to protect myself. I didn't learn any of those things. I was just like trying to survive the best way I could, but I didn't have the right tools to be mm. efficient in making sure that I was safe. Yeah. So the clients that you seek to work with in the future when you become a an official social worker, what what does that clientele look like? Who are the people you feel the most connected to that you would like to help? Well, I would say just about everybody that's marginalized, really. I know African-American single mothers, it's like a constant struggle because the system may be set up and say they want to help, but I feel like it's it's kind of a barrier to prosperity in a way. So it's kind of like the the decisions that are made surrounding the 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 well being of citizens here in America, marginalized citizens, single mothers, is not conducive for them to be um, prosperous. 
it's just for them to be stagnant or maybe fall further down into poverty. So it's like I'm hoping to be able to help to help in that regard and bring in light to what is because you know being at the bottom you don't really have much say but at least if you're in where the decision is being made then you you have a voice if you speak loud enough you know so and you're constant have you found that um, smaller communities you lived in Columbus for a while and then now you're here in Bloomington as a student have you found that smaller communities have more resources or what's your What's been your experience with accessing um, resources and educational opportunities in these smaller spaces here in Indiana? Well, it's definitely a difference. In in New York, I was actually, you know, um, I could get lost in New York and I wouldn't have to worry about um, anything really. Um, my present was as significant as a black person in New York as it is here in Indiana. When I first came to um, Columbus, I felt so out of place <laughs> because it was so white and because it was so small. And when I was in a situation where I needed help, it seemed like that wasn't available for a person like me. And it seemed like there was no sympathy for a person like me. Mm-hmm. Someone would want to hear my story, mm-hmm. but nobody just has to hear it for themselves, mm-hmm. but not as to be empathetic and be mm-hmm. able to help me. So, And you know what's interesting to me, Nordia, is that you, <coughs> you're you sharing your story, and it's hard. I, I can feel that it's a hard mm-hmm. story. To, but I also, like, this woman is incredibly <laughs> courageous because who sojourns from J- Jamaica to, to New, New York, York to, Columbus. To, in, to Columbus, Indiana, to Bloomington, and is about to graduate from Indiana University? I want I want to know what in the world and I know I realize these are your experience you're in the you're in the uh, the weeds of your life journey but what brings you from New York to Indiana yeah tell us what happened in New York and then how you came to the decision to move to Indiana because that's like uh, going from night and day yeah well to put it (laughs) vaguely Um, it was a safety issue. It was a safety issue for me and my son. (coughs) And because I was so isolated, I didn't have any family here. You isolated in New York as well? Yes, I was isolated in New York as well. (coughs) I could get lost in New York, but I was isolated. I was isolated in a way where I felt like I could not step out and be brave in anything. Um, Mm. I felt crippled in a way. And um, I, somebody told me that it was okay for me to come to Columbus. Uh, I wouldn't want to say a family member, but it is. Um, Said, you know, come on, um, I can help you and, you know, bring your son, whatever. I contemplated that decision for a while because in New York I had a, you know, I had a space for mommy and my son. We had a room that we could sleep in. We had, I had a job. It wasn't a lot. It wasn't enough, but that was some kind of small security that I didn't want to give up for the unknown. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
Was there other Jamaican community around you? Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Most definitely there were other Jamaican communities around me. But the atmosphere where I was was not conducive for uh, my son to be raised. You know, um, the house that we've lived in got shot up like twice. Once while my son was in there sleeping and I was at work because I was working night night shift. And my... um, my friend who lives in the same house was um, watching over him. But to know that that happened and I was working, hear that news, it could have been just as much I was there and heard that my son got shot and died. So, you know, that kind of pushed my decision to, like, take that step, take that leap. I was already having some issues where I was trying to keep him safe in a way. And I felt like I need to make that bold step and step out into the unknown which is what I did when I um I took a bus a Greyhound bus for how many hours to Columbus not to Columbus to Indianapolis and then I called um this person who was supposed to come pick they said no they're not coming so I had to take a cab which was like a hundred dollars and um luckily I'd saved a little money for that trip because I had to pay the bus ticket and I didn't know what kind of situation I was getting in going into really and so I was able to pay that cab fare and then I ended up in Columbus um the situation in Columbus it was it was okay for a minute it was okay for a minute and then it got strange because I wasn't able to contribute I wasn't able to get a job I wasn't able to find any kind of you know work to bring in some kind of income to be able to help whoever was trying to help me. So I felt like that was what the situation was. That person probably thought that I would be able to help once I got there. I would be able to at least contribute in some way. And because I wasn't able to find a job, I wasn't able to do that. And then the atmosphere got really thick with clouds. And, you know, and then, you know, they said, this is not working. So I had to find somewhere to go. And that's, that's pretty much how I ended up homeless. How long did you end up staying in Columbus? Six months. Not very long, in other words. So you found yourself homeless after not being able to find a job. Do you think there was, uh, was it because you're a black woman with uh, dreads and uh, a son? Well, I don't have dreads, just natural hair. It's just extensions. (laughs) Well, you have to consider who's asking the question, (laughs) you know. But the, the, when I knew I felt the the heavy cloud in the atmosphere where I was living before, so I knew something was coming. Okay. So when the I was approached and told, you know, this living arrangement is not working out, you know, you have to find somewhere to go, then I started prepping. My mother always told me that, you know, if you ever find yourself in need or in trouble, find a church. And that's exactly what I did. I found a church. Actually, before even that, I started um, going to a church. This church bus would pick me up, me and my son up, and we was visiting that church. We were still, like, in the shadows, not familiar with anybody, really. You know, we just I just wanted a place to go, a safe place. And I thought that church was that. So um, I ended up going to church. So when the situation um, happened where I was told that, you know, this living arrangement is not working out. You have to find somewhere to go. That's where I went. I went and then I exposed myself. I exposed my vulnerability to somebody there at church that I felt like could help me. You know, I was telling them that this is what's going to happen. This is, I'm sure I'm going to be homeless. You know, what can the church do? And before even that, I had already looked into the resources in the community. I'd already looked into the shelters. I'd looked into, you know, the, um, what is that they have here too? 
the trustee, the trustee, somebody sent me to the trustee. You know, I was making phone calls through 211. You know, I was just trying to find some way to get some help. And all of all of that, me trying to get help was never prosperous because of my uh, my status at the time, because I didn't have a a Social Security number, Mm. then you don't qualify for anything. I know some people have it. Um, some people think that, you know, immigrants come here and they take over this, take over that. But, you know, in that situation, I didn't qualify for everything, anything and the community was not willing to help me. Um, that's how I felt because, you know, one shelter said that we can put you up for a night, but then you'll be out. You have to go. You have to, you're going to be out in the streets the next night. So it was actually because um, someone overheard me in the parking lot of the church telling my story. That person jumped in. And said, "You know what? What you're what you're experiencing is familiar, and um, I can try to help you." And she made her phone calls, and she she um, she actually picked us up that same night and took us out for dinner. Um, at this point, I wasn't like I wasn't like I was already told that I have to find somewhere to go. So I was technically not homeless yet. So, but I knew that that was what that meant that you know you have to find somewhere to go so I was trying to step ahead one step ahead in trying to see where I can get help so this woman that we met who actually her name is Hope um, she was like our savior she was our savior she stuck it out with me in terms of driving to Indy making connections speaking to the right people who was able to help me and then it's because of that connection where why they found a shelter here in Bloomington who was willing to take me regardless and that's how I ended up in Bloomington okay which uh, and she's the one who actually drove me to Bloomington Hmm. are you still in touch with her most definitely she must be very proud of you (laughs) she she obviously saw something in you that uh, let her know it was worthwhile to uh, to make that that to offer that assistance and and then to stick it out with you. Yes, she she most definitely did stick it out with me, and you know to receive that help from a white person, it was like, you know, I was skeptical at first, but she showed yeah. that she was genuine and she's empathetic and she cares. So I began to let my guard down and you know expose more vulnerability of what I'm experiencing and what I'm going through. If I didn't do that, I wouldn't have gotten the help that I, I wouldn't have been here. Is the work that Hope did with you, Nordia, is that work that she does as um, her profession or no. as her volunteer no. give back? She wasn't. She wasn't volunteering. She wasn't. Mm. It wasn't like her job or anything. She's actually. She was actually a. Um, wasn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't say homemaker. That sounds so bad. Um, she was a wife and a mother, and mm-hmm. she um, she chose to stay home and take care of her daughter, her youngest daughter, which was like ten or so at the time. And she was um, she does have a CPA, but she chose to stay home. Okay. So there was no connection to like social services, an agency, or, or agency, or mm-hmm. nothing. She just did that out of the goodness of her heart, and you know feeling that that was as she said she felt like she she was bound she was that was her duty to do that here in here in that and what's I, I think that's that duty thing you've you've shared that your mother had a sense of duty 
towards you and keeping you safe. And you have expressed uh, a sense of extreme duty to keep your son safe. And then to have this stranger express a sense of duty. Oftentimes, I think when people are doing the work of um, helping the community, we ask ourselves, who's taking care of the caretakers? (laughs) And when you hear um, us thinking about in this world that we're in right now, who are the allies? And I think about, we think about these things in such political terms, but it's also this one individual person who decides and makes up her mind yes. to help this one individual mom yes, because it's a sense of duty. That she yes. did not know, had no connection no, to. No, none whatsoever. What, what would cause this person to just open... <laughs> themselves up to a perfect stranger right yeah she opened her home she opened her her wallet she she just she was just given did you live with her for a little while no i didn't live with her i spent um a few nights at her house before but i've never lived with her Mm -hmm. yeah Okay. So tell us a little bit about your community. I know that um, before we the show began, we were talking about community and giving back, that that's important to you. Do you want to talk about a little bit what that looks like in your own world and how you're teaching your son to give back to the world around him? Well, I feel like I'm I'm in a position of privilege and because I'm at an advantage, I want to be able to do something with that where I'm not showing selfishness and just trying to take my stride as far as it could go and not be helpful to anybody else because people was helpful to me. So that's kind of the philosophy that I live with, that I'm trying to help as much as I can, as far as I can, with, you know, whoever I can. Mm-hmm. So I try to get involved in the community as much in terms of um, at the direction, in the direction of social work, social justice, you know, community, trying to um, help the marginalized and so forth. So through the United Methodist, I'm a, I'm a part of their outreach committee, which okay. is we... We have different programs and different initiatives in trying to connect with the services that's already here in terms of funding and volunteers and so forth. And we also organize programs in order to give funding to help these organizations as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm also uh, um, vice president for the board of directors for SIHO, South Central India Housing Opportunity. Because I was when I was asked to be on that board and I looked into what they were and what they were doing, it just went right along with what... um, what my goal was to be like um, vocal in advocating. Full for. disclosure, we we both serve on that board. That's where we met. Oh, fantastic! And, and I would never have known this her, was this her, lady's this, story. Yeah, this was her story, <laughs> except that, and when I read the article, I just I had no clue. I felt like I was living. Um, a hidden life, even though I was in Bloomington, and I wasn't. I didn't have to be in the shadows anymore. But because that was my safe, my safe way of existing in strange spaces and new spaces, I wasn't like outgoing. I wasn't like um, you know intertwining with any specific community. I was just um, I was just still doing me mm-hmm. in a way where I felt like I still had to be independent. Mm-hmm. I still had to be independent. I had to find my own power, get my own strength, give my own self-encouragement, and then just keep pushing, pushing, give me the chance and mm-hmm. I move. Give me the chance and I move. That's just what I kept in my mind. You give me the chance and I move. Mm-hmm. I don't stay and think about it. I just move. 
So one, one reason I, that I'm getting the sense that what got you to where you are now, <clears throat> excuse me, is that you were never looking to be taken care of. No. You were always looking for an opportunity and a yes. path forward. <clears throat> excuse me. So tell us about your quest for education. Where, where did, well, you started uh, taking classes at the McDowell Education Center. Was that in Columbus? Or yes, that was actually that was actually a, another safe space because I couldn't find work. Because I couldn't find work, I wasn't comfortable just staying in a house not doing anything. I just wanted to find anything that I can get into. If I couldn't find job, I have to find what else is out there that's free. And McDowell was a free educational program. And because I didn't know if my um, high school diploma would transfer here, yeah. I just went ahead and did it anyway say so if if the time come where I get that freedom to do things then I'm already prepared so I was trying to prepare myself for the next step if the next step came so I went to McDowell and I did the high school I started the high school equivalency um, classes there and the people there was very helpful very nice you know they weren't um, they, they, were, they didn't give me more barriers because there are certain situations where people give me more barriers, but they weren't giving me more barriers. They were trying to open me to mm-hmm. opportunities, even though I had like this wall that, you know, it's, it's a mountain, but they were still trying to give me the opportunity within the perimeter of what they could. Mm-hmm. And that's how that's why I ended up at um um McDowell. And when while I was at McDowell and the whole situation of, you know, me having to find somewhere to live, I had already did like three parts of my um, high school equivalency exam, and it was like five parts, I think. So I had to leave, you know, I had to go, and then I ended up in Bloomington, and when I ended up in Bloomington, I decided that the same thing, I can't just sit down and wait, what can I do, what can I do, that's what I'm pushing for, what can I do, how can I get involved, you know, how can I show my son that I'm not going to just be stagnant because I'm society has put me in a position where they expect me to stay still so I just um, I did the same thing I researched what is free what is available in the community and I found Broadview Adult Education which was similar to McDowell I contacted them and they said you know you started there you can finish here so that's that must have been a relief that was (laughs) that was a relief that you know I didn't have to start over I could just you know jump in with the classes register start taking the classes and then when I feel like I'm ready then you know go for the other parts of the exams so your story is amazing I mean I really want you to understand that uh, I'm I'm hearing what I'm hearing the beginnings of what may become a nonprofit someday, you know, (laughs) you know, it is that your story is like that. And it seems like when I meet people who have overcome incredible barriers and incredible obstacles, those people are the most strident people (laughs) to want to help make a difference for other folk. And that is just what is, it's awe-inspiring. I'm thunderstruck. I'm thunderstruck that you want to go into social work. And you, want, you want some water? I don't need any water. I just want to make sure that this sister knows that you have earned all, all the respect. <laughs> and... um but it was only one respect I was looking for, and that was the respect of my son. Yeah. Mm. To see his mother doing what she, 
you know, pushing, doing, you know, not stopping, not considering that this situation is going to break me. And he was the one who kept me focused and driven because if I, I don't know, if I didn't have him, I don't know if I would be this driven because there was nobody else for him but me. So if I'm not pushing to make my life better, to make his life better, then where what would happen to him? You know, so I think he was the main driving force as well in me um, holding on to that strength where I felt like I can I can go. I can go. I can do it. I can do it. So when yeah. you moved to Columbus, there was a woman who stepped in, stepped up to help you there. And then you um, <clears throat> when you came to Bloomington, what was the, the connection in Bloomington? Did anyone take on a similar role in, to help you out? Any one person? Well, um, <coughs> I connected to a few people. There was um, one lady. She recently passed away. Um, she was. She had the most beautiful soul. Um, I can say Martha Boyles. Um, I was so devastated when um, I found out that she passed. I mean, I know she was battling cancer, but... You know, the cancer one. Um, she was a very good influence in my life because she, I felt like she, 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 she would stand by me as a woman. She, she's, I think she's a woman of color, but she can pass as white. So mm. she had some power and I felt like I needed that power to radiate next to me. Mm. So she was willing to be that. She was willing to, you know, go to schools with me to advocate for my son. She was willing to find out information for me and whatever I need. That's one person. And then there's another person called Hester Hester, who was also she when I was in that mindset where I wanted to find something to do, something to do, something to do, she volunteered to teach me sewing. She volunteered to teach me sewing and she came like twice a week in the shelter to teach me how to sew um, because that's something I wanted. And um, that's, awesome. that's another person. And <sighs> but you, you also spent a lot of time in the library yes. here in Bloomington. Yeah. Yes, the library is another safe space. You know, the library is open. It's not judgmental to anybody. You, you do it's it's a space where you can feel like you can relax, you can breathe without anybody trying to tell you get out or trying to tell you you don't belong or trying to tell you you, you can't do this or you can't do that. Because I've heard a lot of that, you know. So the library was a space for me to think freely. Have, did your son adopt a love for libraries? He did. He's kind of drifting away from it, too, which I don't really... That's I what teenagers really, do. Yeah, yeah he teenager. would go for the um, the teen room to play games, but he was um, he was into books so much so that, you know, he was on the cover of a New York magazine for the public library there when he was, I think he was like seven years old, because that's always our safe space. Just like if I'm in trouble, I know I reach out to a church. I go to church. The library, I discover when I came to America was a safe place where I could go. Stuff was free. I didn't have to pay for anything except for if you keep it too long, you have to pay your dues for right. for late fees or whatever. But it was just that place where there was nothing expected of me. So I was I was able to be free in that space at that moment. Mm -hmm. So... The libraries are definitely safe spaces, and they have so many programs that's geared towards keeping, you know, getting your kids involved, keeping your kids involved in different programs. So my son was in the um, summer reading program every year since he was here until he was like 
um, 13, I think. So throughout your your whole experience, uh, I keep hearing beginning in uh, Jamaica to Columbus to Bloomington, finding a safe space has really made uh, a difference in your life. Yes. And like Roberta said, maybe one day you'll be the one to provide someone else with a safe space. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that that would be... That was my greatest greatest joy to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've made it to Bloomington. You uh, finished your GED at Broadview. Uh, spent a lot of time at the library, and but now you are a student at Indiana University. So I tell can't us believe what, what, it. Yeah, we really <laughs> want to know more I still can't about believe that. it, and I still can't think of you know you asked you said spring I'm graduating. I'm not thinking about that. Oh, I'm oh. not thinking about. That that's the end and I'm going to get there. I'm thinking about now. What do I need to do now? How do I need to stay on track? How do I need to stay focused? Because that's a step that is there, but I'm not there yet. So I have to think about now. So I can't really focus on the fact that I'm going to be graduating. I have to focus on the fact that there is things I have to do in order to get to that point. And I don't want to think of that point until I've completed these steps. Yeah, so tell us about uh, how you ended up uh, getting into Indiana University with uh, with a full scholarship. I understand? Yes, that yeah. was <laughs> that was a funny amazing! one. <laughs> That's amazing. That was a funny one because you know when I came to um, Bloomington, you know I was still living as if I was isolated. You know I was isolated, so I wasn't exposed in a way where I explore the community and know what's Mm -hmm. in the community Mm -hmm. so it's just like you know i googled colleges google school google requirements and that's how it that's kind of how it happened i saw oh indiana right there i could walk i could walk there and you know why not why not that's what i kept saying why not somebody say maybe you should go to ivy tech my you know People try to tell me maybe you should, you know, that's that's you don't have to worry about that. Go to Ivy Tech first, and then when you finish at Ivy Tech, you go um, to Indiana University. And I was like, why? Ivy Tech is way over there. I can't even get there. <laughs> right, why? just the material yeah. reality of the situation. Yeah, it just didn't seem like the best option for me. So I just applied to IU. I just applied to IU, and I received that letter that says I got accepted. I still didn't know what that meant. I was like, okay, I got accepted now, so what? How who going to pay for it? How is going to pay for it? What's, <laughs> and I hear people talking about financial aid and all these stuff. I was like, okay, how do I, how is this? Nobody's explaining anything to me. I just felt like there were some people just telling me, you know, stop. You can't. And I just feel like that's not the reality. I can't. Why not? So I kept that as my repetitive thought in my head. Why not? Why not? What do I need to do next? What can I do next? I went and explore. I went to the admissions office and they say I have to go to the um, international students office. And I went over there. And then, you know, it was a lot of red tape sadness it was a lot of sadness and you know barriers and it was like deterrent but i didn't want it to be deterrent so i just kept because what else am i gonna do what am i gonna do i mean i've come this far you know and then as soon as i got the go ahead from the government that you can go you can do and be i just went i went and say here it is this is what you need this is what i have and then the 
even though I presented that, they there was still back and forth because they couldn't kind of didn't know what to do with me because I'm technically an international, but I didn't come here for school and I lived here for like um, mm-hmm. uh, a year I think or almost a few months, and I didn't come to Indiana for school. They kept on asking me, like, "Did you come to Indiana for school?" Because if you come to Indiana for school, you can't be considered an in-state. You have to be considered outstate. So it's like. In state, out state, and yeah. I still didn't understand what is happening. Yeah, they're just trying to figure out what do they charge you, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I realized eventually. You know, so I had to um, prove that um, you're a state resident. That I'm state. I've been here, and that's not what I came in. And, and actually, what proved that was a letter from the shelter I was staying in to say that she's here. This is her address. And I guess that proved it because, you know, who would come to go to Indiana University and go into a shelter? Okay. And then what happened? Well, after I went, I was doing a back and forth situation with um, between International Students, International Center and the um, Student Center. It's like they don't communicate. So it's like it was even more frustrating and it was getting to the point where I was feeling it. I was feeling like, okay, is this going to be possible? Is this going to be possible? But even though I was thinking that I, my foot was still moving. So they sent me there. I went there. They sent me here. I went there and I was, I think I did that for like four or five different times. Wow. Because they didn't know where I fit in because of my immigration status now. Like I had status, but they didn't know it was it was a new unique situation. And I Mm -hmm. think that was what threw them off, too, because it was a unique situation to them. So they don't know. Everybody's trying to pass the baton, Mm -hmm. you know, so. You know, it's only when I was like, this is not fair to me. You know, I broke down crying in an international student's office. You know, I I present this is all I have. This is what I need. I give you what you say you need. But yet still, I'm going back and forth. I don't think. And that's when I started to speak. I was like, I don't think this is fair. I don't think this is how it's supposed to go. And I just, you know, and that's when I was offered the scholarship when I showed vulnerability Hmm. and expressed my frustration and. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. So so you're on a scholarship now that is paying the full cost of your tuition and fees. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. But the thing is, though it's a scholarship, there are requirements. Okay. Requirements is that you have to keep a three point or above GPA. Okay. And you can't, you have to be full time. Okay. Okay. So. Those are the major requirements. That means I can't go part-time and then work, right? you know, f- in order to get that scholarship. I have to go full-time, and I have to keep a three-point GPA or above. Have you found those kinds of uh, criteria and restrictions have been a little bit of a barrier for you to maintain some sort of economic stability? <laughs> Most definitely. I'm still yeah. living in poverty because I choose mm-hmm. to put education first because I mm-hmm. feel like that is my gateway out of poverty. And mm-hmm. during my during all my years right now, I'm still living in a, a poverty situation. You wouldn't believe what my what I'm living off right now. I could tell you right now, my income probably equals $750 a month. Yes. And that's because I work 15 hours a week. And that's what my son and I, because I've learned to be economical in so many different ways, and I choose to put school first. I could work more, mm-hmm. but how would that affect my goal? Mm-hmm. So I kind of sacrifice myself in order to, for the greater good. 
so of what th- I'm trying to do. this is all just temporary then. This means... Your, your living situation right now is temporary. Well, that's the goal. The goal yeah. is for it to be temporary. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Temporary. <laughs> for it to be temporary. Temporary insanity. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so we've started at Jamaica all the way up to the present. You are working, studying, raising a child as a single mom. Uh, and when I say studying, it's full time, right? Yes. With all of that, you still have time to be active in the community. So you, you, whether you admit it or not, you've taken on the role as a leader in the community by serving on this board of directors. And we got about two minutes left. But is there anything else that you're doing in the community? Apart from being a constant advocate for my son within the school system, which is frustrating, I constantly have to advocate for him for equality, for equity, for him in the school system, which is another frustration because I want him to seen as a be seen as a child who can can be instead of a child yeah. who should be this. Mm-hmm. So that has kind of been um, another one of my. Um, driving force in trying to be a part of the community mm-hmm. is trying to learn about MCSCSC and, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that I'm in um, Broadview right now as an intern, you know, that's kind of like I'm learning about the institution that my son is in while I'm in the institution that my so son is in. So you can advocate for him. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I can better advocate for him as well as advocate for others in yes. the community. Mm-hmm. I would like to know in your last minute or so. Let's Nadia, go ahead and take a few more. Okay. Um, what what do you tell what do you tell the young woman who's out there who can't see past tomorrow yeah yeah good question well what can you do today what can you do today and and take that step and do it don't worry about tomorrow don't worry about the future it's like what can you do today that can put you in a pathway of something that you want to do Mm-hmm. It do, it doesn't have to be something big. It doesn't have to be humongous. It doesn't have to be that you need somebody. It's just got to be what can you do, and then finding out what is possible for you. Research it. You know, schools. There's Broadview. Broadview Adult Education is free. It's free to get a certificate for um, a certificate for workforce, and it's a, it's free to get a high school diploma. It's free to do the. Acuplacer there. They have different classes for different things. Computer is free to do the class for um, teaching assistant. They have teaching assistant that's coming up. They, you know, it's like, what do you want to do? How can you get there? What can you do now? Mm-hmm. That's 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 my uh, my advice. It's like find that thing that you can. Don't think about talk about what you can't do. Think about and do what you can do because you would be set. You would be set in that mindset of thinking, I can't, I can't. Oh, there's too much. There's this barrier. This is this. Then you're focusing on a negative. You're focusing on something that can't help you. So it's like, what can help you in your situation? And it's like taking that step. You're an inspiration. Yeah. Thank you. You know, and I have one last question. Um, And I'm wondering if this is something that's uh, in the back of your mind. But given the current uh, political climate and anti-immigrant hostility coming from the party in power, um, are, are you at all concerned about that? Most definitely I'm concerned <laughs> because right now I'm a temporary resident yeah. in this country and the, 
I think my temper being the reason why I became temporary instead of permanent is because of my color, the color of my skin. It's because I'm from Jamaica and it's not because I'm from some, you know, Anglo-Saxon white country or somebody would compare. Anyway, so it's because of these. I can I can relate. Let's just say I can relate and I'm fearful, but I'm not trying to let that fear stop me from doing anything mm-hmm. or stop me from keep on going on. Folk. I will stop when they stop me. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I will stop when they stop me. And right now they gave me to go ahead and I'm going. I'm going until they stop me. And the political climate, you know, I try not to comment on it because I feel like it's not my place. Because I'm not American, I'm Jamaican, mm. and I feel like I can't really speak for the people here in America, even though I can speak to the cause of immigrants who mm-hmm. uh, immigrated here because they wanted a better life, because they wanted opportunity, and to f- and for this country not to be sympathetic to that, not mm-hmm. to be empathetic to that, it's kind of sis disappointing. You're a Jamaican with a degree from the United States of America. <laughs> and that is, um, that's something nobody can ever take away from right, you. Right. Well, we are just about out of time, uh, Nordia, but what I would like to do is, uh, ask you if it would be okay for us to invite you back on after you, after you, uh, graduate and start up your nonprofit and establish a, a homeless shelter for women and just give us an update on how all, the, all of that is uh, working most out for you. Most definitely, most definitely. I've I've gotten um, connected with the right people and they've been yeah. so influential in my life in helping me to see value in myself. And um, that's does that's, that has does done wonders for me wanting to look like peek at the future, you know, yeah. and see what's out there because there's these people in my life in the School of Social Work. There's Carol Hostetter and there's, you know, Sam Harrell yeah. and there's Daniel Bird. And it's like these people who are see me as a person and not just see me as a black person. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note. <clears throat> We want to thank Nordia McNeish, a woman overcoming barriers and inspiring many with her perseverance and her desire to help others while creating a bright future for herself and her son. We definitely thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you, Nordia. Uh, Thank you for having me. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we are sharing everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address once again is bringiton at wfhb.org.
To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like our WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB, or you can always visit our news website at WFHB.org slash news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I am Roberta Radovich. It's time to give you the latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting the black community. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Roberta, and I have a poem that I'd like to read. I have only just a minute. I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it, forced upon me, can't refuse it. Didn't seek it, didn't choose it but it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it, give account if I abuse it, just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. That's by Dr. Benjamin Mays. The late Honorable Elijah Cummings would on occasion read that poem as a reminder for us to number out our days while redeeming the time. And and, uh, honor of the late great congressman and civil rights icon Elijah Cummings. The city of Baltimore is mourning the loss of Representative Elijah Cummings, who represented Maryland's 7th Congressional District until his death this past Thursday. He was 68. Cummings died from complications of long-standing health challenges at 2.30 a.m. Eastern Time at Gilchrist Hospice Care, his office said in a statement. Within hours, flowers were placed in front of his downtown offices and at City Hall. Flags were flying at half-staff. A fearless champion of justice who fought tirelessly for civil rights and equality for everyone, including his beloved Baltimore. The NAACP, which is headquartered in Baltimore, said in a statement, Our democracy is stronger because of him. Baltimore Mayor Richard C. Young lamented the loss of a powerful voice and one of the strongest and most gifted crusaders for social justice in a statement on Thursday. He was, simply put, a man of God who never forgot his duty to fight for the rights and dignity of the marginalized and often forgotten Young said of Cummings. Larry Gibson, a professor at the University of Maryland Law School, where Cummings graduated in 1976, said Baltimore was just as proud of Cummings as he was of the city. Gibson attended the same high school and college as Cummings and noted that as he rose through the ranks of Maryland politics, the late congressman always emerged as a leader. Now, of course, we're in a period of deep mourning, but we've got lots of memories, Gibson said, that's going to be a strong physical presence forever of him. A small group of reporters gathered outside of Cummings's. Baltimore home in a quiet tree-lined street in the 2000 block of Madison Avenue. The house bears a sign in the window that reads, Re-elect Cummings for Congress, and a single bouquet of white flowers lays on its front steps. Some neighbors were peeking out of the windows or sitting on their stoops, including Darren Timpson, 23. It's very sad for his family, he said. The black community, he said. That's one person that really has not let the city down. 
Timpson remembered the late congressman was the guest speaker of a football <clears throat> banquet he attended when he was 13 and said he was distraught, quote-unquote, when he learned of his death. Another community member, Cynthia Wilson, 54, said residents were left wondering who'll be able to pick up where Cummings left off. We need somebody, she said, that's strong and who will fight for Baltimore, just like he did, she said, sitting in the doorway of the home where she's lived for 12 years. He protected Baltimore. He loved Baltimore. And he did everything he could do to help Baltimore. He meant a lot to Baltimore. And we were blessed to have him for as long as we did. Wilson said she respected Cummins for always defending the city, including when President Donald Trump derided the congressman's district as a rodent-infested mess where no human would want to live. But she said it was seeing him march in the streets during the riots after Freddie Gray's death in 2015 that gave him a, quote, king status. A state of emergency was declared in the city when hundreds took to the streets after grade 25 died of injuries sustained during a police transport. Nobody ever stood up like he did, Wilson said. He actually walked in the street while they were throwing trash cans and all that. He just locked arms with people, and he kept going. One of those people was Bishop Walter Thomas, who has served as a pastor of New Psalmist Baptist Church since 1975. Thomas remembered forming a human chain with Cummings and another church member to walk down North Avenue as riots began on the night of Gray's funeral. After we went out there that night, the night of Freddie Gray's funeral, he was back on that street trying to bring calm, Thomas said. He was out there every night calling folks to civility, calling folks to trust the process, and I shall never forget that. Thomas said Cummings was his good friend for nearly 40 years and that he and his wife attended church nearly every Sunday, barring a legislative commitment. As a son of sharecroppers who later became Pentecostal preachers, it was Cummings' faith that drove him to serve, Thomas said. He said Cummings' death devastated the church. Everybody's crushed, Thomas said. Here he is more than just the United States congressman. He is Brother Elijah Cummings. The pastor lamented the void left by Cummings' death, but said his legacy will forever live. And that was a look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues. Please send your comments to bring it on at WFHB.org. Our thanks once again to Ms. Nordia McNeish, a woman overcoming barriers and inspiring many with her perseverance and desire to help others while creating a bright future for herself and her son. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone, with help from the WFHB News Department. Our board engineer is Chantal Lafontant, and our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Roberta Radovich. I'm William Hosea.